Well, uh, change is something that uh, I think we've been dealing with quite a bit <laughs> the first six months of uh, of this year, haven't we? And, I, and Exhibit A, I guess, is the fact that we're outside worshiping together this morning. Um, you know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, change change is something that, uh, you know, there's... There's times where I think we're fine with change, and there's other times where, where change can be a struggle, whether it's because we're just used to doing something a certain way, or, or we have nostalgia from doing something a certain way, or, or we don't understand why things need to be done a, a, a different way. And so, so at times, change can be, can be good, and it can be welcomed. At, time, at other times, change can, can be resisted a bit, and... You know, we're, we're, we're creatures of habit, and so it's understandable. Um, you know, it can, be, it can be difficult to change from doing things that we've always done it one way to now doing it another way, even if that has only been for five or ten years. If we've done something for five or ten years to change and have to do it differently can, can be kind of a difficult transition. I want you to think about, um, imagine what it would be like if something had been done a certain way for 1,500 years, and then all of the sudden it changed. I mean, imagine what that w- would have been like. I don't, I don't know that I can truly grasp 1,500 years of doing something a certain way and then all of a sudden having to, to change, and, and, and in some ways... When you think about uh, the people of Israel, when you think about the Jews in the, uh, at, at the beginning of the New Testament especially, when, when Jesus came on the scene, in many ways they were, they were dealing with just that type of a situation. Right, they were dealing with the result of this new covenant that had been instituted by Jesus. And it had been around 1,500 years that they had lived under an old covenant. It had been about 1,500 years since Moses had come down the mountain with the, the tablets, the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments, and the people were called to uphold those commands, along with all the supporting laws that would go with them. Uh, you know, they, they were to worship God and, and order their lives around those things. So for 1,500 years, this, this covenant with God had, had been the, the focal point, or it was supposed to be the focal point, of all of Jewish life. Now imagine that you are Paul, and you're traveling around the known world, spreading the message that a new covenant has been instituted. It, I mean, it's only natural to assume that there's going to be pushback to that message, especially from Jews who've been living a certain way for 1,500 years. There's there's going to need to be some very good reasons that Paul is going to have to give why this old covenant is now being done away with and a new covenant is being instituted. And so what Paul does in chapter 3 is he he gives some of these reasons. He points out why the the new covenant uh, is so much better than the old one. He, he shows why the old covenant of the law was never intended to last forever. It was never intended to solve the problem of sin in the world. He shows why the new covenant of Jesus will last forever. And, and he shows how it does bring us back to a right relationship with God. 
So, so if you remember back to last week, we talked about this picture that Paul painted using the Roman triumph. Uh, we said that Jesus himself is the one who has won the victory and that we ourselves share in that victory as we uh, submit ourselves to him, allow Jesus to lead us into eternal life. Paul also talked about how those who've submitted themselves to Jesus are, are the fragrance of Christ. And so we are called to, to spread this message about Jesus into the world, much as the smell of incense would have, would have been spread throughout Rome during these triumphs. Well, in that passage last week, Paul asked the rhetorical question towards the end. In verse 16, he asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who's worthy for such a task that Paul has just laid out before the church in Corinth? You might even say, what makes Paul so great that he is chosen to, to take this message of Jesus around the world? You know, it seems that, that this was the question that a, that a group of people from the Jewish area of Judea had, had been urging the church to ask. They had, they had come to Corinth after Paul had left, and, and apparently their motives were, were somewhat uh, selfish. We talked last week about uh, how some peddled the gospel of Jesus in order to make money, and they caused the church to question Paul. They caused the church to question his motives, his, his qualifications regarding his apostolic ministry. And so Paul begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 by, by addressing these questions that had been brought up. So I would encourage you to follow along with me. Um, either open your Bibles or uh, in your bulletin uh, with the sermon notes, the scripture is printed there as well. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, he asks this. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So, uh, you know, in that time, much, much like today, letters of recommendation or, or references, as, as we would probably call them today, they helped connect a previously unknown person with another person or with, a, with another group of people. So, so lesser known traveling teachers would have letters of recommendations from more well-known teachers that they would take with them. And then when they would come into town or come to a church, th these letters would vouch for them as a teacher, it would vouch for their credibility. So in these verses, Paul is rhetorically asking the church if, you know, since they have all these questions about him all of a sudden, Paul's saying, do I need to give you a letter of, of recommendation? I mean, remember, Paul planted <laughs> this church. Paul planted the church. They are Christians as the result of Paul's ministry, as the result of Paul's sharing the gospel with them. Paul says that they themselves are his letter of recommendation. They only have to look at the impact of the gospel in their own lives to see the validity of Paul's ministry. And that's what Paul is telling them here. You know, as, as I was thinking about that, um, 
I'm going to be out of town a couple Sundays from now, and, and so Tom is going to deliver uh, the sermon on that Sunday morning. Can you imagine the Board of Elders coming up to Tom and saying, Tom, we, we need a letter of recommendation from you before we allow you to preach in a couple weeks. Check your email, by the way, Tom. Just Right? I mean, come on, 20 years of pastoring here. We are his letter of recommendation. We are his qualification to be able to come and, and deliver a sermon on that Sunday morning. Right? I mean, th- that's in essence the situation in which Paul finds himself. He had planted this church, and he's saying, you really need me to give you a letter of recommendation. But what Paul does is he takes that situation, and rather than focus on his own credibility, Paul immediately shifts the focus to the one who brought about this transformation in the lives of the church. Yes, Paul proclaimed the gospel and brought the gospel to them, but it wasn't Paul that did the work of transformation. He stated that that Christ himself is the author of this living letter, as he calls it. And then he also stated that this letter was not written on stone tablets, but on human hearts. Now, now we have to stop right there because, I mean, that is a loaded statement that Paul is making. We might, we might be tempted ju- to just kind of read past that, but, but that is very much a loaded statement from Paul. And, and he is going to use it to springboard into a discussion about the Old and New Covenants. So by mentioning tablets of stone, Paul has taken us back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, are representative of, of the Old Covenant, which God made with the Jews that 1,500 years prior. That covenant really is summarized well by God's words in Exodus 19, just before he gave the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 19:5, it says this, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Uh, that, that is the essence of the old covenant that God had made with the Jewish people. Now, we shouldn't assume for a second that God chose the Hebrew people because they were awesome people who were already doing good things for God. God's very act of choosing them was an act of grace toward them. God's mercy is is always an act of grace from God toward sinful humans. It is that that is always the case. But along with cho- with that choosing was was the stipulation that the people were to follow the laws and the commands that God would give to them. So those laws were the 10 commandments specifically were physically written on on stone tablets so that the people would be able to see them and that they would then be able to follow them. The problem was that the people were not able to follow them. They were not able. I mean, you can flip open to any page of the Old Testament in between Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, and Malachi chapter 4, the end of the Old Testament. Flip open to just about any page, and you'll probably find an example or a direct result of the people not faithfully carrying out the commands that God had given to them but also scattered throughout the entire Old Testament are, are hints given that this covenant with the Jews was only meant to be 
temporary. It was only meant to last until a better covenant would come and would be given to the world. And so uh, this is why, for instance, Jeremiah would prophesy that, that a new covenant would come in which God would, would put his law within them. And he says, I will write it on their hearts. I mean, you can hear echoes of what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians, drawing on Jeremiah's words, written on hearts rather than on, on tablets of stone. It, it was believed by, by some that the law sought to produce righteousness for the people from something outside of themselves, from uh, something external. Right? If, if they believed that the words written on stone were given to them in order to show a way to live righteously, in order to produce righteousness in the lives of God's people. But the results showed time and time and time again that, that it didn't work, that righteousness cannot be gained from anything outside of ourselves. What Paul is saying is that the Spirit of the living God, on the other hand, does bring about righteousness in a person, but, but from within, rather than, than from something outside of, of ourselves. So the Spirit transforms us from the inside, rather than seeking to produce righteousness from, from the outside through adherence to a law, which, which the Old Covenant proved didn't work. It didn't work. So, so we cannot become righteous through our law keeping. It just doesn't work. The righteousness given to us through the Spirit has zero to do with our ability or inability to keep God's commands. Now, I want us to stop for just a minute and and, re- and kind of refresh ourselves uh, of the past history of the church in Corinth. A couple years ago, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, do you remember some of the things that Paul addressed in that letter in 1 Corinthians? I mean, uh, the church at, at, the, at the time of that writing, the church was divided over, over loyalties to Paul, to Apollos, to Peter. And so Paul had to address that. The church was, was seeking worldly wisdom as opposed to wisdom from God. The church was applauding their own acceptance of a man who was committing adultery with his, with his uh, father's wife. The church was suing each other in public. The church was falling into sexual immorality. The church was arguing about what to do with food sacrificed to idols. They were oppressing the poor. Even, even during communion, they were oppressing the poor. Uh, the, the church was pridefully seeking the gifts of the Spirit, which they thought brought greater recognition. And then to top it all off, on his most recent visit, somebody from the church personally attacked Paul. Remember, Paul, <laughs> Paul said that the church itself was his letter proving his, his apostolic ministry. Why would Paul say that with all the shortcomings that exist in the church? I mean, when you read through the, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's like, Paul, do you really want to be bragging about the church in Corinth and saying, hey, look at them. You know, the, this, is, this is my letter of recommendation. I mean, it, it, it kind of causes me to think back to a few years ago when we put a pastoral search team together. I was trying to imagine how we would have responded had a candidate sent us a letter of recommendation from his most recent church that contained the things that I just listed. You know, look at what my previous congregation has been up to, right? I mean, I, 
I don't think we could have moved on fast enough from, from having that type of letter given to us, right? But in physical letters of recommendation, I, you know, when they're written by humans, we focus on actions. We focus on outcomes. We, we look for outward displays of morality, and, and we assume that these outward displays of morality lead to righteousness. But what Paul knew to be true is that inward righteousness was not contingent upon outward displays. Inward righteousness is contingent upon the Holy Spirit working within a person. And so Paul's credibility was not reliant upon the church's actions, but upon their inner transformation. That's what Paul's saying here. Does inner transformation show itself through outward displays? Yes. Yes, it does. Our, our actions, our outward actions will flow from, from our inward motives and our inward desires. But we also can't fool ourselves into thinking that we can solve the problem of sin and produce righteousness through better rules or better commands or even just better adherence to rules and commands. I mean, remember, Moses had the Ten Commandments. I don't think you get better rules than that. Moses had the Ten Commandments. They were written by the very finger of God, but even those were not able to produce righteousness within the people. And, and I, think, I think this truth has, has huge ramifications in many areas of life when we think about it. Yeah, you know, with, with today being uh, Father's Day, I, I think when it comes to parenting, this truth has great ramifications. We, we cannot create righteousness within our kids or our grandkids by crafting just the right set of rules for them. We can't, we can't scare them into righteousness by, by putting in place just the right set of consequences if they break those rules. Let me tell you, I try though. I've, I've tried. Maybe you've tried that as well. Right, my default way too often with, with my kids is to create the perfect rules and guidelines so that they'll learn how to live rightly. And if I'm not seeing the desired outcome, well, then, then something needs to be tweaked. Either the rule needs to be tweaked or the, the consequence needs to be changed. My default is to, to trust in those rules and in those laws to produce righteousness. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't have rules for our kids. You know, students don't go home and try to say, Pastor Aaron said we need to get rid of any rules. That, that's not at all what I'm saying. Rules are effective in restraining sin. Absolutely. Rules are effective in protecting us from our sinful selves and protecting us from other sinful human beings as well. But rules cannot bring about righteousness in our lives. It's only God who is able to do that within us. Only God is able to, to write his commandments on our hearts so, so that we desire to follow them from within as opposed to being forced to follow them from without. So in light of this, I, I think what it means is we've got to be on our knees for our kids and our grandkids, asking God to do within their hearts what only he can do. I can't do it as a parent. None of us can do it, again, by just forming the right rules. It's only God that can, that can bring about that righteousness. Our rules can't defeat sin. They can't produce righteousness. Only God is able to do that. So I think there's ramifications for us there in, in parenting, and I think, I think this has ramifications in a, in a large scale 
context as well. You know, any, any issues of sin which we see in our world cannot be solved through better laws. Right? If, if any nation would have brought about righteousness through laws, America would have done it by now. We are a nation of laws and regulations, and, and we would have done it if it could be done. But yet, we see sin alive and well as we look out into our nation, into our world. And again, don't hear me say that we don't need laws, that we don't need a government to enforce those laws. I'm not promoting anarchy this morning. Not at all. We need laws and we need systems to help restrain sin and protect people from the results of sin. But the problem of sin in our world is only going to be solved as the Holy Spirit works from within. It's the only way. The gospel of Jesus Christ being written on hearts is the only way we're ever going to see true, lasting change in regard to sin. It's the only way we see it within ourselves. It's the only way we're going to see it within our nation and within our world as well. And I think that's why it's so important that we be people who proclaim the gospel as our number one priority. Uh, you know, as we talked about last week, being people who who spread the, the, the fragrance, the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. It doesn't mean that we don't get involved in politics and, and, and other means of influencing the laws in our country, but it does mean, I think, that we function according to the truth that Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring actual victory over sin. So a new and improved system of rules and regulations is, is ultimately going to be futile if, if the gospel is not there with it. The gospel has to be there. It has to be the Spirit of God transforming people's hearts. Laws can't produce righteousness from without. Only the Holy Spirit can produce that from within a person. So when it, when it comes to, to parenting, for example, I, I, I can and, and, and at times do feel quite overwhelmed in that whole endeavor. I'll, I'll let you in on that secret, students. Your parents at times don't really have a good idea of what they're doing. <laughs> we're, we're trying to figure this out together. It doesn't mean you don't listen to them. But man, it, you know, we feel like we're in over our heads at times and ill-equipped for this task. And when it comes to looking out at our nation and looking out in our world, I look at that and think, man, I am so ill-equipped to handle all of that that is going on. And it leads me to, to ask the question that Paul asked in, at the end of chapter 2. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to raise kids? Who is sufficient to, to, to see righteousness come about in, in our nation, in our world? Who is sufficient for any of that? The good thing is there's encouragement and hope when asking that question. So the question that Paul asked at the end of chapter 2, he goes on to answer at the beginning of chapter 3. Look with me at verse, uh, verse 4. He says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from Christ, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. So Paul's saying it's only, it's only through Christ 
that we are sufficient to be the aroma of Christ, as Paul said in chapter 2. It's only through Christ that we are sufficient to proclaim Christ, to proclaim the new covenant. There's, there's nothing about ourselves which qualifies us for the task of proclaiming the gospel. We can't take credit for anything good that we find within ourselves. It's the result of God's transforming work within us. And honestly, that's exactly what qualifies us to proclaim the new covenant, this gospel message. If the covenant was based upon our ability to uphold the laws and and prove ourselves faithful or prove ourselves righteousness, then, then we'd all be disqualified to proclaim that message. Because we can't do it. Not a one of us or, or anyone throughout history apart from Jesus has been able to fully uphold that old covenant. And so the Judaizers of Paul's day, they sought to disqualify him because Paul didn't perfectly uphold the, the law written on the, the tablets of stone. They saw him as disqualified to be an apostle because he failed to, to live a life that fully upheld the Old Covenant. And if Paul would have been proclaiming the Old Covenant, then they would have had a point. But Paul was not proclaiming the Old Covenant. He was proclaiming the New Covenant. He was proclaiming the Gospel of Christ. And so his qualification came because of Christ. So the message of the gospel is that Jesus has instituted this new covenant whereby our righteousness comes from the Spirit, transforming us from within. So we are sufficient, we are qualified because of God and because of his work within us. So the reason there's hope for, for anyone else in the world is because there was hope for Paul and there's hope for you and there's hope for me. Right? The fact that God transforms others that is a that is a message worth proclaiming because God has transformed Paul and he's transformed you and he's transformed me that's where the the sufficiency and the qualification comes from his spirit within us gives us life according to to verse 6 what Paul says there the letter kills but the spirit gives life the letter leads us to death because because we prove that we just can't keep it We can't keep that old covenant. The Spirit gives us life because he produces within us righteousness that the law could not do. So it can be be tempting to assume that because of Paul's words here that he is completely against the law of God. And in fact, you know, when when Paul first visited Corinth and, and planted the church, you see it in Acts, uh, in, in Acts chapter 18. He was accused by the Jews of, of leading people to worship a God who was different from the one found in the Old Testament. That's what they accused Paul of. In reality, Paul was not leading them to worship a different God. Paul was pros- proclaiming to them a new covenant from the same God. They just didn't grasp that. Paul understood the goodness of of the law. He understood the goodness of the God who gave the law, but he also understood the limits of the law and the limits of the old covenant. And, and, and we'll get into that even more next week, talking about the glory of the new covenant compared to the old covenant. But for right now, the question for, the, for uh, this morning to ask ourselves is, is, am I putting faith in the tablets of stone 
Or am I putting my faith in the Spirit of God? If I assume that my actions are what makes me righteous before God, then my faith is in tablets of stone, as Paul would say. I will spend my whole life trying to live up to a certain ideal in order to prove myself to God or prove myself to others. And in the end, I'm going to find that that the letter of the law only leads to death. It can never produce the righteousness within myself that I desire and I need. But if I come to the understanding that I cannot keep the law and I instead look to Christ and his work of transformation that's born out of his sacrifice on the cross, then then I will find that he is faithful to come and he comes into my life and he does the work in my life that the law cannot do. You know, I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life resting in his finished work rather than trying to complete it myself. I will ultimately find that his spirit gives life, and not just here and now, but, but for all eternity as well. That's the outcome of the new covenant, the outcome of the gospel message. So, so what you and I need, what, what our families need, what our, what our nation needs, what our whole, world's need, whole world needs is not better laws to follow. We don't need better adherence to the current laws. What we truly need that's going to solve the sin problem is, is the work of God within us. The Spirit transforming us from the inside. That is what is our most desperate need. And so Paul urges us to remember that as we look especially in chapter 3. And again, we'll kind of continue with this theme next week. The law cannot produce righteousness. It's only the Spirit of God that can do that. Would you stand with me? Let's close in prayer before we finish worshiping with a few more songs. God, I thank you for what you do within us. God, I think each and every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we cannot perfectly uphold the old covenant commands. We know that we have failed. We know that we fail far more often than we would like to admit. And God, I thank you so much that our hope does not rest in that old covenant. I thank you that our hope is in the new covenant and that our hope is in you transforming us from the inside. So God, I ask that you would continue that work within us, that you would do what only you can do. We give you praise that you died on the cross, that you made a way for this transformation to happen. And God, as we close now uh, singing songs of worship to you again, may that be our focus. God, the work that you did in order to bring about our transformation. We give you the praise this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.